BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello and welcome to the show. We hope you're having a lovely Christmas day. Has it been for you so far, Mark? Well, it's been very Christmassy. What's been your favourite bit? My favourite bit of Christmas is Christmas Eve night, going up the stairs to bed on Christmas Eve night because... Um, as the good lady professor her indoors uh, so when she was a child they used to say it's magic night it's magic night and that's I still I still I still get a tingle with that I, I think I, I, in many ways the anticipation of Christmas is the most Christmassy thing about Christmas so in this very special Christmas special we have some of the best bits of the year what can we expect over the next two hours well Simon we can hear some of your best interviews including Taran Edgerton, Chadwick Boseman and Renee Zellweger. And we can hear some of your best and worst reviews. When I say worst reviews I don't mean it's a bad review. I know what you meant. But it's a review about a bad everyone got it. Okay. Including Godzilla, Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon, Holmes and Watson and Joker. And just a reminder this is a recorded show so even if you do text it won't be read. We begin with Simon's chat with Amelia Clark who came in to talk about Last Christmas. I really enjoyed our walk today. Ditto. Would you like to repeat the experience? Would you like to give me your number? I don't have a phone. <laughs> My God, I was just beginning to think you're not as weird as you look. Before you throw me in the bin with the rest of your battered conquests, it's not completely true. I do have a phone. It's just locked in a cupboard. Why? Oh, I got so tired of staring at my hand all day. I mean, you should try it. It's like saying you should try death. I think somebody really wants to get hold of yeah, you. Yeah, no, I know. Someone really isn't going to get the chance. <clears throat> no. <laughs> Ditch that. All of your stresses will just melt away. Oh, but I just like stress. Oi, you getting on? Yeah. And that's a clip from last Christmas. I'm delighted to say Amelia Clark is with us. Hello, Amelia. How are you? Hello. I'm good. Thank you very much. How good. was your birthday? It was wonderful. It was very good. I plan on it continuing tomorrow when I have a day off. <laughs> you have like... You can have week-long celebrations, really. You, Indeed. You posted some very nice dancing pictures on, yes. on yes. Instagram. Yes. You're having a good time. Yes, I had a very good time. Yeah. I many, let the world know I love Panorazans. So. Yeah, and you have many, many millions of followers on Instagram. And then I looked at your Twitter account, which you posted two tweets, and you've got, you still got 1.2 million <laughs> followers. I know. That's a million people waiting for you to say something. Something, anything. So now you understand why I haven't said anything. Correct. <laughs> No, that's absolutely fine. So t- uh, tell us about last Christmas. Tell, it, tell us how you got in- involved with this. Um, well, I, my, my agents told me that Emma Thompson had written a script and I immediately jumped at the chance to read it. So, Now, I've read, I've read that you said yes. that. But is, yeah. it, is that genuinely what happened, that you heard that Emma Thompson had written the script and did you want to be involved? You just said, you didn't look at the script? No, I did. Well, what so it... I think people stopped the soundbite before I continued on the conversation, which, because it was also more a kind of, you know, Emma Thompson's written a script, I'm pretty sure I'm going to love it. I'm pretty sure there's, you know, she could write nothing that I would not jump the chance to be involved in because she's amazing. She's yes. an Oscar-winning of course. legend. She and Greg, she, who's the cat's mother, Emma Thompson and Greg Weiss wrote that's this that's beautiful script. That's what my dad script. would have said. Yeah, no, I've got my mum in my head saying it. I can't use I can't say it. Um, so Emma and Greg wrote this fabulous script. And so my agents told me that they had and that there was a part, a part for a girl, a girl of my age. So I was very, very excited to read that script, which I did do. And then obviously I had to, you know, ask, please, 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 can I be in this movie? And then many discussions were had. And I met Paul Feig, who was the director of yes. our wonderful movie. Uh, and then, you know, and then it and then it was. He's quite I a character, isn't he? I, sp- he I spoke is. to him a couple of years ago. He's quite a 
quite a forceful chap to be around. Very progressive guy. Indeed, he's pretty. He's pretty marvelous, and um, and he always looks dapper too, which is excellent. He, he absolutely does. Yeah. Okay, so given that there was a part for a quotes girl of your age, <laughs> yeah. So this girl is Kate. Tell us. Tell us about. Tell us about her. Yeah, so Kate, for me, is the ultimate anti-heroine. She is a young girl uh, in her 20s and living in London and in that delightful time in your life when you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> in your early 20s, you've just left school or university and the rest of your life lies ahead and Lord, Lord only knows what that is going to feel like and be like and she has no idea. So when you meet her, she really is a little bit chaotic and a little bit unsure and a little bit kind of messy around the edges. She's also unapologetically snarky and she's in a bad mood she'll be in a bad mood she's a young girl who isn't forced to smile and be a good girl all the time which I really loved I loved the fact that there was a fully formed multi-dimensional young yes. lady who wasn't just kind of sitting in the corner looking pretty and where she comes from is is very relevant from, to the story yes so Kate comes from Katerina comes from former Yugoslavia where and her parents fled there to come to London to escape the war and she is the daughter of immigrant parents living in England at the time when Brexit has begun. So that is a huge plot point within our story. And getting to kind of play a character where your heritage and your history is in a completely alien space to her because she left when she's so young. There's not a lot that she remembers, but my goodness, do her parents. And, um, you know, you always have fights with your parents and... Her parents especially have spent their life trying to give their both their daughters every opportunity that life has to offer in a safe environment to let them soar. Mm. Um, and so it was kind of interesting researching what that would have felt like for Katerina um, to kind of try and iron out the accent so she wasn't picked on at school and, you know, feel as normal as she could in this new environment where she was not fully accepted in the beginning. So... You've got that huge change between Emma's playing my mum and my dad, and they are, largely speaking, pretty miserable and pretty scared and confused and alone. And the girls are kind of running havoc around London, just trying to figure out mm. who they are, sort of ignoring that history up until a certain point. But throughout the movie, we get to see her come to terms with what her what her heritage actually is and what it means to her and what it means to her family and, and what it means now, today, in London, with the backdrop of exit. So, so on the one hand... The movie is London and yes. Covent Garden and fairy lights yes. and Christmas mm -hmm. and tinsel mm -hmm. and songs and singing yeah. and everything glistening. Yes. Yes. And on the other hand, like you just said, it's uh, it's Brexit, it's immigration, mm -hmm. there's social commentary, there's a scene yeah. on, on the bus when some characters are told to go back to where they belong. It's mm -hmm. a... It's an unusual mixture Mix. to have. I know. Yes, it is. I is mean, that what attracted you to do it? Yeah, yeah, deeply. It's. I mean, Emma and Greg couldn't write anything that wasn't, um, in some way, in line with their political beliefs because they're, you know, they're outspoken about it, and it felt honest and it felt truthful, and it also felt like a joyful, uplifting, hopeful story that was centered around Christmas at Christmas time, and um, and what it means to be a human being in a world that can sometimes feel very scary and very alienating. So it was great to have those that dichotomy. Great to have the two things hand mm. in hand because often, you know, we we, we watch rom coms and we watch comedies and we watch Christmas movies to feel good and to feel, you know, better <laughs> and to kind of take a break and have a smile and have a hopeful thought. But I loved that this was um, a slightly more truthful version of that story, which hopefully then, you know, the messages within the story is kind of 
that we have the ability to feel better. But it's not the story of someone who goes to worldwide fame or no. gets loads of money or has all these kind of um, enormous things happen to her. It's, they're tiny. Maybe in the next small. one. Maybe, Maybe in the, in the part two. Gemini Man, Will Smith goes head to head with his digitally conjured younger self. Um, oh, I saw in- this on the side of a bus. <laughs> yeah. And wondered. And you know, in a way, that may have been the best way to see it. Anyway, so the story is Will Smith is a retiring assassin who finds himself pursued by a youthful killer who seems to know his every move. Mm. It's almost as if he's looking in a mirror, albeit a mirror that makes him look a little bit weirdly artificial. <laughs> Here's a clip. Right there! Who are you? I don't want to shoot you! Fine. Don't shoot me. Mind if I shoot you? Did I show you a picture of me? Yeah, you look old. Kid, you take one step closer, you're gonna leave me no choice. Honking soundtrack. And indeed, but yeah, that's not quite full Brahms, but it's not directed by Ang Lee, who used that um, high frame 3D, uh, that's very high frame rate 3D on Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. And I don't know whether you remember, but I said when I reviewed that film, in some places you could see it in ordinary presentation, we saw it presented in the high frame rate. And it was one of those really weird things in which what happens is when you get to a certain high frame rate, so everything just starts to look like weird behind the scenes. Do you remember 48 frames per second for the Hobbit stuff? In which it just yeah. yeah, fine. The high frame rate thing for me is a really weirdly non-cinematic experience. Okay, it's meant to solve a problem of transverse skitter when you have 3D, and if a camera moves left to right, the 3D will skitter slightly at normal frame rate, 48 frames, it doesn't, 120 just makes everything super real, so it looks like it's kind of happening in front of you. But also it's edited, and it's cut out like so. So it's a weird thing about something cinematic is happening, but it doesn't look cinematic. What it looks like is it's happening in front of you, but it's cinematically organised, and your brain goes, okay, in that case it looks like behind the footage sorry that's how it looks the weird thing is that um there there are some sort of well-staged crashy bangy fights there are some you know little action sequences which are you know well done and uh mary elizabeth winstead injecting a much needed human note as the kind of ass-kicking sidekick who's you know who's, who's tough and strong and strange and you know interesting but the problem with it was particularly in the the version in which i saw it all you could concentrate on was the bizarre format, which just made you think, OK, I'm looking at the bizarre de-aging process, which, of course, is done. Through, they said we had to create a full digital human being based on Will at 23 years old. It was nerve wracking until we saw some tests and then we knew he could do it. And so there are ideas in there that are sort of sub blade runnery ideas about souls and bodies and but I'm afraid that watching it, it was a totally uh, just distracting experience because it's like it's, it's like it's like um, Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. He was so busy wondering whether you could, you never stopped to think if you should. 
happening to me? I've disarmed you. It's Night Hunter, which is a preposterously terrible thriller oh, well, with an A-list cast who, honestly, I spent the whole film thinking, why are you here? What on earth has led you to this? So um, it's uh, Henry Cavill is Marshall, who is uh, he's on the trail of a psycho who uh, kidnaps and imprisons uh, women. And in, his, in the course of his doing it, he has to team up with a vigilante Play, who is also uh, hunting these people, played by Sir Ben Kingsley. The very life is on the line, right now, right this second. And here we Sir are. Ben Kingsley does the thing that Sir Ben Kingsley does, which is, you know, I always said the thing about what Richard Gere's primary thing is, that he blinks, drops his head and he exhales, okay? Ben Kingsley's thing has now become the slightly wide-eyed stare and the weirdly punctuated sentence. So pass me that email, okay? This is Sir Ben Kingsley... Reads an email. My name is Emmy Short for Emil. Zola, I am 12 years old film geek. And you go, what are you, what's ha- Are you reading it off cue cards that you can't see? Is some, somebody keep walking in front of the thing? So his whole performance is literally, um, I would say that Toy Story 4 is my favourite of the Toy Story. I'll just drive a bus through that pause. Meanwhile, the rest of the cast, and again, I said, can I proper alias cast, Stanley Tucci. Stanley Tucci is playing the commissioner, whose job it is, is to come in and bang the table and say, I want this in court now. I want this in court now. I want this in court now. While somebody else scratches their chin and says, I think there may be more to this than meets the eye. I don't care. I want this in court now because I saw Primal Fear. And incidentally, we've only got Henry Cavill for another day. The other thing, it's a about, great cast, by the way. You go and see it. I know it's com- completely nuts. And um, in the days when there was such a thing as a straight-to-video movie, this would have been a straight-to-video movie. And when I was doing the sight and sound video column, believe me, this would have been the one that we we reviewed at the end of the month after we'd done all the Greg Dark, you know, Alexander Gregory Hippolyte, Delia Shepard, Shannon Tweed movies. This would have been the one. And finally. You won't believe there's a there was a film that came out after Silence of the Lambs called Slaughter of the Innocent, which was somebody had seen Silence of the Lambs and said, well, let's do something like that. But let's make it nasty. The the weird thing about this film is I think it does have a nasty edge. I think it's kind of leering in a way which is very, very problematic. The performances are just either the Henry Cavill absolute wardrobe flat packed, you know, panelled performance or this central performance of the of the character who is mysterious which is so ludicrously over the top that it appears to be dropped in from a completely different film i think what happened was there there it must be there must be some explanation for this other than the script in the film nobody read this script and rang their agent and said you know I, I just read this script and I think it's really powerful and original and i i need you to get me on this who else is doing it Henry Cavill's doing it. Okay, well, well, I want the second banana to Henry Cavill. Oh, Stanley Tucci's on. Okay, well, I'll play the third banana. Oh, that's taken as well. Okay, well, in fact, I want to be fourth banana in the film that's a little bit like Slaughter of the Lambs, Primal Fear, Usual Suspects, and then the thing with the... And I I can do that. Is that Woody Allen? (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Honestly, it is... And I'm I'm not the only person in this office that's seen it. It is terrible. Simon's got friends.
She packed my bags last night pre-flight Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high As a kite by then I'm delighted to say that Taryn Edgerton is back on the show. Hello, Taryn, how are you? I'm very well. It's lovely to see you again, Simon. Are you, are you enjoying all this? Because this is quite some bum fight, isn't it? It's demanding and very energetic experience promoting a film always, but there is something galvanising about having pride in the project, and I have pride in the project. Yeah. And a number of people have said, you know, this is a real kind of breakout role for you. Does it feel... I mean, you've had really high-profile roles before, and we've spoken to you about those, but, you know, does this feel of a different order? In some respects, of course it does. I would be lying if I said it didn't, because it's about someone globally recognisable. But beyond that, the process has felt very creative and collaborative, and I've loved the people who've worked on it. And I genuinely have great faith in all of them and their specialist skills. And when it all comes together, I believe in the movie. So I'm, um, I'm very excited to be talking about it. But I am going to reserve judgment on quite how it's going to affect my life until it's at least come out in one territory. <laughs> okay. I did what I think most people will do when they come out. And I had a blast. I thought it was terrific. And I just downloaded a whole bunch of Elton songs which as well as the soundtrack with you singing, uh, because I thought I had them and then I didn't have them, you know, because you forget the genius of the writing skills of Elton John and Bernie, yeah. Bernie Taupin. So it's directed by Dexter Fletcher, you've worked with before. Yeah. Can you explain how the jigsaw came together of you being Elton came about? So we were doing Kingsman 2 and I think Matthew Vaughan struck up something of a friendship with Elton John and David Furnish, who have had this project for over a decade in development with Lee Hall, the scriptwriter. And Matthew had found out that I could sing... And as you know, the film is a musical. And I think his architect's mind started ticking and he obviously approached them first and then asked me how I felt about it. And I thought it was incredibly exciting and he said that he had Dexter in mind to direct it. Dexter and I had this fab time making a movie called Eddie the Eagle with Hugh Jackman. And it just felt right. And it felt like an unmissable opportunity. And then it kind of sat there for a couple of years with lots of conversations happening and, and very little actually moving forward until late 2017 where it started to really feel like something that was going to become a reality. And then by mid-2018, we were rocking and rolling. At the start of 2018, we went to Abbey Road and recorded me performing two songs by a piano, not playing the piano, but by a piano. And I sang your song and Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. And we did that basically to try and get the studio support we needed and Paramount became involved after that point and everything started to really accelerate. Because it's not just Elton being in the Kingsman movie, but it's also the fact that you sang I'm Still Standing in Sing. Yes, that, that happened. And also your RADA audition, I understand, was your song. This is true. So true. the Elton influence, even though you're way too young to be a part of the Elton story from the 70s. Which of course. Is the period of, but he's been a part of your life anyway. But I think that's the case for a lot of people. It sounds like fate, and it sounds like an extraordinary level of synchronicity, but actually, for most people, we can chart points in our lives from Elton's music. That's the nature of these global phenomena. Uh, they do form the soundtrack to our lives, and it's why people feel such a sense of global ownership. And I'm, I am no exception. You know, I've, Elton's someone I've been aware of from a very, very young age. Yeah. Can I ask you about becoming Elton? Whether there was, uh, I don't know, whether it's he, the way he walks, the way he sings, the way he holds himself. Is there something when it clicked? I think it's about a duality of extremely kind of ferocious expression and massive levels of energy. And then 
an extremely vulnerable sensitivity. And it's about oscillating between the two, I think. I'm not a great impersonator. I don't think it's my particular skill set. However, I have sought to capture something of the spirit of who he is. And knowing him a little bit, that to me is about that thing he has where one minute he can seem hugely imposing and intimidating and the next he can look like a little boy. And that's who he is in my mind. And that's sort of what I've tried to bring to my performance. I've interviewed him a, a number of times and it's fair enough to say it's not an impersonation. But There are you, elements, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. I'm not going to deny that. But, but, and, but also he has a very distinctive singing style. His yeah. diction is really unique. I mean, it's quite mangled. It, it is, it times. is. And one of the challenges of this is it's changed so much over the course of his life. You know, one of his contemporaries is Michael Caine and the same things happen to him. That's what happens as you get older. Because of the nature of what our movie is stylistically, we don't deal with the songs chronologically. That presents a very unique challenge because... Elton's voice when he was 23 is wildly different to his voice of, say, the late 90s. But it might be that a song from the late 90s is included in the first act of the movie and a song that he wrote when he was 23 is included in the last. So essentially, it's about trying to find moments to pay homage to and be evocative of without being locked down by a very specific chronology because the nature of what our movie is doesn't really allow for that. Simon. Hey, Mark. Simon. I see Midsommar. Midsommar. It's one of the choices for DVD of the week. I went to Sweden recently and was amazed that their navy have barcodes on the side of their ships. Do you know why? Go on. It's so that when they come back into port, they can Scandinavian. Simon Poole's not here today. I asked a British expat <laughs> while I was there about the best part of living in Sweden. He said the flag's a big plus. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that. That sounds very good. Actually, I've got a better joke. Go on. A Swedish woman, two Swedish men, and another Swedish woman <laughs> walk into a bar. So that's three Swedish <laughs> Two Swedish men and two Swedish women walk into a bar. Walk into... Oh, yeah. oh I see. Ah. Walk into a bar. Walk into a bar. I see. Fine. Anyway, I noticed from the cast list of Midsommar that lots of the cast are from the country in which it's set, but some of them aren't really Swedish. Here we go. Those are the artificial Sweteners. <laughs> anyway, I'll stop now. I'll stop now. How many of these things are there? Seventeen and counting. That's messed up. I was talking to uh, Simon Poole, who, who came up with this... Producer on the show. Yes, who said... It's wet transformers, and that is actually the perfect description of it. The worst thing about it is that I really like Godzilla, which I know divided some people. This is the the, the, the Gareth Edwards, not yeah, Godzilla, I, not I like this year, Honda. Yeah. And there were moments of real spectacular visual beauty in Godzilla, particularly the Halo jump sequence. Um, this film is ugly and messy and noisy and headachey. I actually really liked Kong Skull Island, which was directed by Jordan Vert Roberts, who had made um, Kings of Summer, which is a film I absolutely love. And that had a narrative. I mean, the narrative was Apocalypse Now, but it had a narrative. The thing with this is, f firstly, it doesn't have any character coherence at all, to the point that there were characters... There were things about the characters that were revealed in the end credits that I hadn't even noticed while watching the film. And I don't think anybody else did either. 
it makes no sense. The dialogue is expository and completely perfunctory and doesn't add up. But the worst thing about it is, as with the, those, you know, head-banging Michael Bay Transformers movies, nothing has any weight or heft because it's just big, noisy, shouty, grunty, ugly, um, aggressive, smashy, bashy, crashy stuff going on to no good end and no avail and no emotional involvement. I mean, it's there. there is in Kong Skull Island an evocation of a really, really big Kong, and it's that's impressive. And if you look at things like Pacific Rim, the uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro film, there are, you know, evocation of kaiju and of the right, which is just, which are, wow, that's really big. In the case of this, it's just, that's really big. No, that's really big. And that's really big. And that's really big. And that's really noisy. And that's really, who's that? Can't remember. It's really big. And, he's, and it's, it's, What's disappointing about it is that with that much stuff being thrown at the screen, it just shouted me to sleep. I mean, I was really struggling to stay awake and I, big Charles Dance fan, looked like Charles Dance was just phoning it in. I, th I think if you asked Charles Dance to tell you the plot, he wouldn't know and neither would anybody else. And Vera Farmiga is a brilliant actor. You don't give Vera Farmiga those kind. Also, halfway through the film... Something turns out about one of the characters that makes the whole of the thing, everything that's happened to them up to that point, nonsense. And also, eco-terrorists? <clears throat> yeah, it's rubbish. Mark's review of Godzilla there. You're listening to our Best of the Year show. Coming up, you can hear my chat with Sienna Miller. Mark's reviews of Judy, The Good Liar, and... Midsommar! After the latest Five Live News. Welcome back to our Best of the Year show. Coming up, we've got reviews of Us, Monos and Judy. But first, here's Mark's review of the latest from Ardman. It's Sean the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. It travelled light years through space to find intelligent life. I started smiling in the first 10 seconds of Sean the Sheep, and then I giggled and chuckled and guffawed and beamed my way through the whole movie. And, and it's, you know, as you said, it's a, it's a movie that clearly will play to a, to, to a younger audience, but I am about as old as it is possible to get, as old, as tired, old as and cynical as it is possible to get, and I just absolutely loved it. So the story is, uh, at the very, very beginning, there is, I mean, it kind of, this takes uh, riffs, as with all these productions, they take riffs from E.T. in 2001 and X-Files and a little bit of Jaws as well. So um, essentially... A very, very cuddly blue alien is uh, stranded on Earth uh, as a result of uh, UFO visitation. Sean's back, but there's a new arrival in town who's a little alien. Meet Lula. Lula. And needs to needs to be taken in and looked after, and so it falls to Sean and the rest of the the crew from uh, Mossy Bottom Farm to do that to, to look after him and ultimately to, to to help the alien get back home. Meanwhile, the farmer has realised that M Mossy Bottom has become a tourist trap as a result of UFO sightings, and so has decided to cash in on the uh, on the UFO craze by building this kind of theme park that will net him, you know, obviously millions and enable him to buy a spanking new tractor. That's basically it, as far as the plot's concerned. And the, the joy of it is, as before, 
It's no words, it's just sounds. We're going to do a strange thing. We did this before. I'm going to play you a clip from a, the, a wordless, but, you know, obviously noises from a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. Oh. Okay, almost anything could have been. I like that. So, the the first thing is, I mean, I love the fact that uh, the movie looks like it's been made with care and attention and love. It just, (laughs) it just feels like something which you know you can feel the love and the attention that's gone into it. That's the first thing. Second thing is, as somebody who is an absolute you know advocate and lover of silent cinema, I love the idea that in the in the modern age you can make a film that essentially uses the universal language of cinema. Um, one of the things, I've quoted this before, one of the things that Mike Figgis said was that when immigrants used to arrive in America, the first thing that would happen, they would come to Ellis Island, they would be shown a silent film of life in New York. And that film would explain to them visually how the world that they were about to enter worked. And then sound came along and film became language specific. But there is a universal language of film, which is, you know, beyond the use of words. And I think that what's happening with this is throwing back to that. I mean, it's not silent. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of sound effects. There's music. There's all the rest of it. But silent in as much as wordless. And I I love that. And they, it has a classic sense of slapstick, which I think is one of the highest art forms. I was saying the other day, if I understood dance, I think I, th- I think I would think it was the greatest of all art forms. I don't because I'm, I just don't get it in the way that I ought to. Sure. But there is something about dance, singing in the rain, something about dance which I think is sublime. And there is something about slapstick for me, which is just great. And I watched this and I just thought, this this is universal cinema made flesh. Anybody could watch this. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old or, you know, cynical or optimistic. It doesn't make any difference. You watch it, you, the characters, everything you need to know about them is there through gesture, is there through um, those sort of strange little expressions. The, the, the film is fantastically cine-literate. It's making all these gags about it. But the gags aren't winking at you. They're right. not going like, oh, look, we stuck that in, we stuck that Here's in. Here's one for the mums and dads. There may one, yeah. be... The, Gags are in there because the people that made the film absolutely love the medium that they're working in. And I struggle to remember the last time that I saw a film that just felt so perfectly good-hearted and thrilled about the cinematic medium. Delighted to say that I'm joined by the star of the movie, who is smiling big time, Renee Zellweger. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Well, you know, I'm a little bit sniffy. But, yeah, you, you are. Know, you're a little sniffy. Just a little bit sniffy. <laughs> but you, you should be top of the world. 
Um, you know what? I'm in London. I have a billion friends here. They all came out for the premiere. Uh, you know, Rupert's down the hall. Rufus is down the hall. Life's pretty good. Yeah. And you like London. Indeed, Judy liked London. So. Yes, that's true. We share that in common. So the movie, uh, tell us about the movie because it's not a biopic as in telling the story of Judy Garland focuses on one particular time in her life. Just explain the kind of the focus of the film. Yes, well, it is uh, it's set in uh, 1968 in London. Uh, Judy did a series of concerts at the Talk of the Town nightclub, which is now the Hippodrome, it I is, believe. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's toward the, the end of her life, the last few, few months of her life, actually. And how do we find her? Um, well, in America, not doing so well, looking for employment. And she gets a great gig in London. And who doesn't want to go to London? I think people will be shocked. A lot of people will know her story very well. But a lot of people will be shocked to find out quite how down on her luck she is at the start mm-hmm. of the movie. Just, to, I mean, she's nearly bankrupt, isn't she? Yeah, I was, I was shocked myself. I didn't know um, much about the circumstances that she was navigating toward the end of her life. I was very surprised. It didn't make sense to me that someone who had worked for as long as she had at the levels that she had, mm. who was internationally celebrated in the way that she was, would find herself facing financial hardship. That was so bizarre to me. And did you find out the answers? Mm, I mean, I think it's an amalgam of things, circumstances. Um, let's see, I guess decisions that were made on her behalf at a very young age that set her down mm. a path of having to face certain difficulties that I think people were ignorant about at the time. When did this movie and this role first come in your direction and you got a sniff of it? 2017. David Livingstone, the producer who had optioned the play, I can't remember what it's called now, Other Side of the Rainbow or something like that. Forgive me, I don't know, I can't remember. But he optioned it to make a film of it, and he'd been working on it since about 2012, I think. And then with Tom Edge, came up with a script, sent it my way, and I did not know why. (laughs) So you looked at the script and thought, hmm, Hmm. I could do that? Or did you you think, I can't do that? (laughs) Probably the latter. Definitely not the former. <laughs> um, and they thought of you because of Chicago, was it? Or I don't know. I guess that's a David Livingstone and a, and a Rupert Gould question. Um, Rupert Gould being the director. Yes. Yeah. Um, but they did invite me to come to London to discuss it and to try a few things just to see. It just didn't... What did they ask you to try? Mm, a couple of black wigs, do a photo shoot, uh, maybe learn a couple of songs, uh, book a couple of sessions at Abbey Road mm-hmm. to see how things stand and where we might be able to, I don't know, what we might be able to achieve one and how day. Did that, and how did it feel? Uh, coming to Abbey Road. The whole when, <laughs> when they were asking you to try on the wigs and try on the role and do some songs. Yeah, I think I was mostly, uh, uh, I was probably overwhelmed by the idea of Abbey Road more than anything. Yes. <laughs> going to take a taxi to Abbey Road and they're going to let me in. <laughs> still, still quite a moment. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, oh, of course. Every day walking up the steps at Abbey Road when they let you in is quite a moment. You did know? you do the zebra crossing thing? Of course I did. Oh. I'm an American. I was an American tourist. Of course I did. <laughs> For once in my life I have someone who needs me Someone I've needed so long Since a kind of key thing about the story as told here on screen is when she says at one point, you know, I'm only Judy for an hour. 
the rest of the time I'm so she she actually pretty much says look Judy is a performance and I think you could you know perhaps charitably but I think you could read it as the performative part of that performance actually fits with the show and certainly it harks back to its theatrical origins and makes it less of a problem that I never got completely lost in it. I never thought, for all the physicality, for all the fact that she gets... I mean, there are certain moments when she's in silhouette when you think you've got that absolutely right. It's to do with, you know, the the way the chin is held, the way the hand's held. It, it's a, it is a very, very fine theatrical performance. The the narrative itself is very on the nose and it is full of chubby moments, um, particularly in the flashbacks in which... You know, we are sort of very clearly told this leads to this leads to this. I mean, as you say, there is a great darkness in the story. I mean, there really is a great darkness in the story. What I think sometimes gets lost, I mean, you said, you know, she had a great sense of humour and the movie captures that. Personally, I didn't find that it did capture that. I thought that it was much more sort of looking at the things that went wrong and why they went wrong in a very sympathetic way, but not having that kind of thousand watt light bulb effect of actually you know what the magic of judy garland was except in the two characters that you refer to the stan dan characters who are um you know fictionalized characters and on the one hand they exist to uh i think they're they're put in there by tom edge the screenwriter as opposed to the original at one point on one level they're put in there to kind of contextualize judy garland within the lgbt community and how important she was and also to, just to remind us how much the world has changed not you know not least legally but actually for me the most important thing about those two characters was that looking at them looking at judy you got a sense of the joy that I thought was missing elsewhere in the film. There is a scene towards the end, which is a, you know, a, a beautiful contrivance, but I think it is a well-earned contrivance, which is a moment of singing, which I, which did reduce me to floods of tears, even as I thought this is, you know, th- this is a total contrivance, but I don't care because you've earned it. And those characters could easily have been done in a way that kind of j- just felt like a dramatic device. But for me, watching the look on Andy Nyman's face, watching Judy Garland. I mean, the scene when they first meet her and they literally can't believe that they're... because they go to every single show. I thought that was really done, really well done and sort of really beautifully handled. Um, there are some, you know, very, very solid uh, supporting performances uh, all the way through. Jesse Buckley as the person whose job it is to make sure that Judy Garland actually gets on stage. It's a fairly small role, but I think she does it well. And she does give you a sense when Judy Garland first arrives, she's the person in whose face you see the, oh, heavens, is this going to be all right? Because, you know, the talk of the town is a big venue and there's all these press things and whether or not she's going to be up to it. I also thought it captured that kind of chaotic pinballing sense of, you know, a life being knocked between pillar to post. There's a lot of talk about born in a trunk and living on stage. But I think you do get a sense of that kind of chaos um, that I'm sure that, you know, peripatetic onstage lifestyle caused. But it comes back in the end to whether or not you think that what the, you know, what the film is aiming to do is to give you the impression that you're watching Judy Garland or whether what the film is aiming to do is to give you the impression that you're watching a performance that is about Judy Garland. There was some coverage recently from, um, you know, family members saying, if you want to know about Judy Garland, go back and watch Judy Garland's movies. Well, yeah, they are there for all time and we will have that and it's a great privilege that we do. Oh. 
Though your heart is aching, smile Even though it's breaking When there are clouds in the sky You'll get by if you smile Through your fear and sorrow, smile And maybe tomorrow You'll see the sun come shining through for you Here's what's interesting. Some of the words that have been used to describe the film, as I said, are irresponsible, uh, nasty, uh, mean-spirited. Uh, they are all words to, about which I would think I'm not entirely sure which film you were expecting. For a start, um, the director, who recently in an interview said in a way which is very unendearing. He said, well, he was asked why he's moved from comedy into doing this with kind of psychological... And he said, well, because woke culture has killed comedy, which makes you think, oh, for heaven's sake, really? And this is, this is absolutely a film which has a, you know, an angry, dark undercurrent to it. Um, it is a film which refers very, very blankly to uh, 70s classics and early 80s classics. It is a film which blithely invokes uh, Chaplin. It, it, it's not a film in which subtlety is a main register. But I thought what it was, was a film that certainly while I was watching, I mean, one thing I have found about it is thinking about it afterwards, I've become more uneasy about it. I had a very interesting conversation with Robbie Collin. Robbie Collin interviewed Joaquin Phoenix about the film, and Robbie Collin raised the, the, the thing that's been raised by a lot of people, which is saying, isn't it a film that's kind of incendiary? Isn't it a film that's going to incite people to, you know, to, to, to random acts of violence? And when Robbie Collin raised this, Joaquin Phoenix left the room. He then gathered himself and came back in sometime later. But it was, a, it was, a, it was obviously a fractured moment. And as Robbie said... The surprise is that he hadn't thought it through. He said that he left because he hadn't thought about the question. What a strange reaction. I know, it is a strange reaction. But then, you know, actors are not like you and me. Directors, you know, are similarly. My own feeling is that it is a film about the origin of a, of a character that we all know as a villain. It is a film about the, the sort of the fermenting, seething stuff that creates this character. It is a film that is directed by the director of the Hangover movies. And it is a film which, at its centre, has a character who is completely unable to connect with the world around him in the worst possible way, in that he's a clown who isn't funny or whose version of funny is completely at odds with everybody else. And one of the things that some people said is, well, he's a sympathetic character. And he's not sympathetic. He's pitiful. It's a different thing. And actually, I thought that what the film managed to do, and I thought it did it very well. Believe me, nobody went in with lower expectations than I did, because as you know, I am no fan of the Hangover movies. I thought it, was, it did a pretty good job of depicting somebody's kind of descent into completely self-absorbed, narcissistic rage. I also think that the film is more complicated than its, than its detractors are giving it credit for. I think Joaquin Phoenix's central performance, which is very much... I mean, I'm a real sucker for, for physicality in terms of describing, you know, a character's uh, inner state, the external... You know, I wish I knew something about dance because I kind of think that in the end, probably if I actually understood dance, I would think it was the highest art form because I love that whole thing about inner states being expressed through outer movement. And from the very beginning, when we see there's a scene in which he's attacked on the streets and he runs after his attackers in his big clown shoes, so it's a great big lolloping gait. But even when he's not wearing the shoes, he's got the same gait. There is a consistency of the character. And I think that what 
the film manages to do. Weirdly enough, we were talking about this in relation to good posture. Do you have to like the characters in a film to like the film? And I actually thought, firstly, I mean, I love King of Comedy and I didn't think that the film uh, invoked King of Comedy badly. I thought that it, it knew what it was doing. Secondly, I thought that that performance was very, very intense and had exactly the right register for the film in the terms of, you know, mixing the, that thing between sort of the, that slightly cartoony version of 70s hard-boiled cinema and graphic no novel origins and what one already knows about uh, you know, the central figure. I thought the performance was uh, w was really striking. I thought he managed to do something new, something that, bearing in mind that, you know, Joker is a character who's been played by Nicholson and Ledger, and people have done really, really interesting things with the character, managed to do something completely different with it. And I did come out, my first reaction was, wow, I'm amazed that the director of the Hangover movies made that film. And then as I thought about it, I thought, no, actually, it makes sense. Because the thing with the Hangover movies, I never found them funny. I just found them cynical and nasty. And the thing with this is, that's kind of the point. The Joker is a cynical and nasty character. He's, he's, he, is a, he is a character who has been sort of boiled in, 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 in the loathing that is around him. But you don't. It's not that you think, oh, he's wonderful and he should be given his time, because what he's suffering from is a, you know, is a, is a sort of internalized narcissism, because it's rage, because he's been abused by this thing around him, and he's rage. And I would ask the same question about how does one think about the Charles Bronson character in Death Wish, which is a film which incidentally people misremember. It's you know, or how do you think about Michael Douglas in Falling Down? Those are the kind of the touchstones I would think. Okay, because after after. Heath Ledger's performance. I kind of thought no one needs to do Joker so ever did again. I. So did I, and I was wrong. Since he found out I was pregnant 17 years ago, he never wanted anything to do with her. So. Deb, would you sit down, please? <clears throat> Where is he? Where is he living now? South Carolina, Florida. Look, you're wasting your time with him, okay? Tyler Henrik. This is who you need to be looking at. They got into an argument last night. He admitted that. He never wanted her to have Jesse in the first place. And he's been violent with her before. What, 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 what do you mean he's been violent? I mean he's hit her more than once. So if it was more than once, you can bet it was a lot more than that. Well, has an incident report ever been filed? I told her to file one, but she wasn't going to do that to the father of her kid. What I'm saying is all the boxes are checked off here. And that's a clip from American Woman. I'm delighted to say I've been joined by its star, Sienna Miller. Hello, Sienna. How are you? I'm good. How are you? The bare bones of the story are misleading, but tell them anyway. So what, what happens to Deb? What is the, certainly at the start of the movie, right. what is it that's happening to her? So she is a 32-year-old mother of a 16-year-old daughter who has a two-year-old son. So, so you're that's, a grandma for the I'm, first time. I'm in a grandma, yes. I'm a granny. And her 16-year-old goes missing and she is left to raise a two-year-old son. And I think at the beginning of the film, she's 32, but she's really reliving the youth that was taken from her because she was such a young parent. So she's frivolous and she's messy and irresponsible. And she's catapulted back into motherhood. Um 
and her daughter is missing. But it's really not a missing person story. It's sort of about what is left in the aftermath of a tragedy like that. How do you carry on? And people do. How do you cope? How does it change you? How does the world around you change? It's a real character study of a woman on a journey that is at times unspeakably tragic. But she gets back up and there's humor in it. And it's I think it's something that you're left feeling sort of hopefully it's inspiring by the end. You said character study and you also said Odyssey, Mm. which are more helpful in terms of explaining the kind of movie that it is. Because as soon as you talk about a missing child... A lot of people, indeed I did, when I sort of read the kind of bare bones of it, thinking, oh, it's that kind of film. Mm -hmm. And it really isn't that kind of film. So it's quite difficult to explain what it is. But a study of this woman, Deb, and also her family, it's worth mentioning, because the family that you were a part of is one of the most believable families that I think I've ever seen, I've seen in recent years anyway. Just explain a little bit about who they are and how they fit, because they're just like over the road, these guys. Yeah, so there's a mother and two daughters, me and Christina Hendricks plays my sister, Kath. Kath and her husband, Terry, and two kids live across the road from Deb and her daughter and grandson. And Amy Madigan plays our mother, who... So I think the dynamic, because the father died early on, The dynamic was really these three women. And it's fraught with love and fury and tension. But there is a deep sense of of real love in spite of how people behave, which is often Deb behaving like a black sheep. Yeah, It felt really real to me too. I grew up in a house with a mother and a sister. That was also my dynamic. And Deb can be really unpleasant with her mother and her mother has to stomach a lot of it. But you're never that far away from the feeling of love and how close you know, love and hate and resentment can be. They can all coexist. Kath is much more responsible, much more together and sometimes despondent about her sister's behaviour. But there again is, especially between those two women, a really deep love. And that for me is the beating heart of the film, is the sisterly bond. Sienna Miller there talking about her movie American Woman, available to stream right now. What have we got coming up? In the last hour, Mark. We've got your chats with Dame Helen Miriam, Chadwick Boseman, Tom Hanks and or Danny Boyle. It's never an asset to the show when you do that. But if I stopped doing it, I think people would feel disappointed. No, no, really. They would just say, oh, good. Mark's just said Danny Boyle. No, I think it's like John Inman. He had to say I'm free, even though nobody thought it was funny. It was just a thing. Okay, well, I'll live with it for the moment. Okay, enough already. And also, uh, coming up, we can enjoy once again Mark's cogitations on Rambo, Last Blood, Monos, Us, and The Good Liar, after the latest Five Live News. Hello, I'm Simon Mayo, and he is Mark Kermode, and this is our Best of the Year show. What on earth is coming up, Mark? I'm looking forward to hearing your chat with Ordani Boyle and Himesh Patel, Helen Mirren and Tom Hanks. Right, thank you very much. Although, why you've got a song for Danny Boyle and not for Himesh, Helen or Tom, to me, feels a little Favoritism. bit unfair. Anyway, looking forward to your reviews of Monos, Last Christmas, The Good Liar, Us, and first, Rambo, Last Blood. And by the way... Please don't text because we don't care about them. It's a recorded show. Rambo, Last Blood, a new entry. Is it better than Dora and the Lost City of Gold? No. I mean, I haven't seen Dora and the Lost City of Gold, but I can tell you with some confidence that Rambo, Last Blood isn't better than it. I will refer you once again, and I'm sorry if people have heard this, but back in 1998-99, I chased Sylvester Stallone around the Cannes Film Festival in order to get an interview with him for... 
um, Copland, which he had just made. And it was, yes, it was a good film. It was a shame that I'd spent such a long time attempting to get him for finally cornering him in a car park. Um, I didn't stalk him. This was all set up by the PR people. And the thing that I remember is that Sylvester Stallone was talking about that his, you know, he was basically now doing a different kind of role. And he said, well, I couldn't ever do another Rambo movie. And I quote, because that would just be stupid. So anyway, several Rambo movies later. Now we have Rambo Lost Blood, which is just horrible. Um, mm-hmm. As people quite rightly say, it's a film which basically kind of acts like a, an advert for Trump's border wall policy. It's a film in which there is, if you need to know what the violence is specifically, look on the BBFC website, but it's all there in its, you know, in its kind of grisly nastiness. There is nothing good about the filmmaking, but perhaps the best condemnation of it. I mean, I sat there just thinking, okay, this is just really depressingly poor and badly made. But uh, David Morrell, who wrote the original book that the first Rambo was uh, written on, has taken to Twitter to say, I agree with the Rambo Last Blood reviews, which have been universally negative, despite the fact there's a trailer that says, hey, the reviews are great. No, they're, no, they're not. Uh, it says, the film is a mess. I'm embarrassed to have my name associated with it. I hated it. It's dull, degrading, filled with post-it note stereotypes. Waterworld is a masterpiece compared to this. That's the guy who wrote the book. This is just meat-headed nonsense. An yeah. email... Uh, from Corrie and Christina. Please indulge me. As an esteemed long-time member of the church, but a first-time emergency mailer, yes. I wanted to share with you the far-reaching power cinema continues to have on people. I am the proud father of a wonderfully cheeky young man, Samuel. By the time you've read this out, he'll be readying himself for his 14th birthday shenanigans. Wow. Samuel has Down syndrome, and one of his challenges today is communication. His comprehension is OK, but he struggles with speaking, and more importantly, with being understood. He loves film and cinema and has remained code compliant since the age of two. He loves musicals, Frozen, The Greatest Showman, Sing, Bugsy Malone, Moana, Beauty and the Beast, Princess and the Frog, you name it. Not just musicals either. Films like Wall-E and Shaun the Sheep speak to him in ways talkies just can't. The former being the first film he cried at, the scene where Wall-E shuts down and rocks himself to sleep. Wow. My son can not only recite each song in his own unique way, but also the accompanying moves seeing a young boy with their back to the television, reciting Let It Go as he reaches for the imaginary hairpin to let down his imaginary long blonde locks, and in complete unison with the images behind him, is certainly a sight to behold. Now, an occupational hazard of watching musicals is the obligatory purchase of said soundtracks. Yeah. Quite often, the amp will go up to 11 and Samuel's eyes will start to well up. This is me is often sung with such passion that I can't help but think my son understands the lyrics better than most. It's as if the song is giving him the voice that he doesn't yet have. It's giving him his moment to tell the world that he's proud of who he is. At the end of his renditions, he will often come over for a hug. Tears are stealthily mopped up by my shirt and all is right with the world again. Cinema has been an important part of his life, amongst others. Inside Out has helped teach him about emotions, Coco with Life and Death, although Book of Life is clearly better. Thank you. Added in. Well done. Needlessly. Thank you. Is that in the email or did you do it? Is well in the, it is Thank in the you. email. And Coraline, which, well, Coraline just scared the pants out of everyone. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Of everyone but him. Suffice to say, cinema will continue to play an important role in his life. Anyway, could you please give a huge was up to Samuel for his birthday tomorrow? Farmageddon beckons in the morning. Hey. And a was up to Jason as well. Happy birthday. And, and so on to Harry. What a uh, brilliant Christina. email. Are you who they say you are? Who do they say I am? You tell me. He killed a lot of perps in the last ten years. Never shot first. 
Never. All right, let me be more precise, Detective Burns. I've never fired without just cause. Seven dead cops? Feels like a lot of just cause. These guys are killers. So I need to know that we got each other's backs tonight. Because I got a kid at home. Doesn't need to wake up without her mother. You wear that badge, I got your back. And that's a clip from 21 Bridges. I'm delighted to say that it starred Chadwick Boseman. He's in the studio. Hello, Chadwick, how are you? How you doing, man? I'm doing very well. Simon, uh, Simon. Yes, that's right. That, that's right. That, that's me. Uh, was your first time in London the British American Drama Academy? Yes. It was in Oxford, but we would come to, we would come to London to, to see plays, and, you know, and just scrounge around and party. And <laughs> so it's just like the old times for you. And this is here. not like the old times. No, we're, this, this reminds me, I think, when I, I'm riding around and we see the West End, it just reminds me of what, what I was trying to get to, you know what I'm saying? So it's good to be here for that reason, too. Tell us about 21 Bridges. The funny thing about this this film is that it came to me through the Russo brothers on the premiere night after Infinity War. After, you know, I had just seen myself killed on screen and they um, came to me with a script. And I was like, well, am I really dead? Is that what's going on here? And uh, they were like, no, no, you know, just we just feel like you're you're perfect for this role. It had a lot of the, those elements of, you know, the anti-hero films, those older sort of cop films that question justice. Um, I was thinking Serpico, Serpico and French Connection, Connection. and all those, yeah. Yeah, it, it had that that feeling, and I was like, I want to do a film like that, you know. You must have been offered loads and loads of films. There must have been something that was really standout about this that made you want to pick this one next. I think it was that I, I wanted to do a film like this, and then I think I had questions about the character, you know what I'm saying? Like, well, what makes him tick? And very often that's what, you know, makes you want to do a role is that you're trying to figure a person out. Does he have, like, a high moral compass? Where does that come from? Who Who is this guy? So, to me, I wanted to explore who that type of cop was, and I felt like you needed to see this person in the world. And You know, sometimes art imitates life, sometimes life imitates art. So, you put it up on the screen, it helps people to see something or want to be something. So, to get that right, you go and hang out with NYPD? I did, yeah. Um, what did you learn from them? <laughs> Honestly, I saw what it is to stay up all night chasing something, waiting for something to happen, trying to break a case. What is that like? And if you do start to get some clues on what's happening, then that turns into two days, three days, you know. What does that mean in terms of your family life? What does that mean mean in terms of, like, commitment to the job and, like, what do you lose at home? Hmm. They talked about all that stuff while, you know, while I was with them. Finally, Chadwick, I'm sure everyone's asking you about the Martin Scorsese quotes <laughs> and is it the interview that he gave in Empire when he was talking about Marvel films being closer to theme parks and not really cinema? What did you make of that when you heard it? To be honest, I don't... I don't really make that much of the the it's a it's it's an interesting thing to like dialogue about debate about but the truth of the matter is you you have to listen to what he's saying because of of who he is and what he's done. Of course he's talking about the aesthetic of film, the aesthetic of cinema. But I think he's also talking about the state of the movie making industry which is one in which the studios are putting hundreds of millions of dollars into 
making the the, the Marvel movies, superhero movies, or whatever. But they're not making movies like Twenty One Bridges. They're not making you know movies like he he has made throughout his career. And I think what's true about what he's saying is that you want you want to maintain a sense of quality and standard in filmmaking. Um, and in, I guess what he's saying essentially is that if you then give awards to to this, if he has the box office and it has the award season, does that completely take over what good film is? So that's a valid point from a person who is a genius at making films. At the same time, you know, it's it's an absolute statement that he's making. Now he does, I think, in his op-ed sort of, he makes a statement, there is a place where these two can cross. So he, he leaves the, the possibility open for the high-quality superhero film, but he's saying in most cases that's not going to happen. I would say, you know, it's probably right, but it's also true that it's really hard to make a good film anyway. Just period, it's hard to make a good film. And so, I, you know, I, I, I have to respect his opinion because he's a genius at what he does. At the same time, you got to think about when he's saying it. Mm-hmm. He's saying it when he's possibly campaigning for an award. He's saying it, you know, at a time when he's making a Netflix movie. So that's how his the eyes get on his film. And it's not going to be in the cinemas. It's not going to be seen the best way. So he, he, again, is speaking to the time period. He's speaking also to his advantage. Sure. So you have, to, you have to take the truth of it. You also have to say, well, be, be like for me, the statement doesn't, like you're asking me also because, you know, I did a movie. I did the first, you know, the superhero movie that was nominated for, for an Oscar. I'm securing that, you know, because I know the work that we did is not the normal work that you would do for a superhero movie. What we were doing had a higher standard to it because we were asking a question, well, how how do we make a movie that goes beyond that? How do we create real a real culture, a real world here where you're not doing a parody of Africa? How do you do that? How do you create that? There is mystery in our in our film because my brother, I remember my brother turning to me like, they're going to kill you? <laughs> you know, the mystery that Scorsese is talking about, it's in Black Panther. You know what I'm saying? So they're going to kill you? What's going to happen? People really thought that. And, and I think the funny thing about it is if he saw Black Panther, he didn't get that. He didn't get that there was this sort of feeling of being unsure there was this feeling of not knowing what was going to happen that black people felt because we never had a superhero like this before. We thought that they, we, we, you like, you know, white people will kill us off. So it's a possibility that we could be gone. So we felt that angst. We felt that thing that you would feel from cinema when we watched it. Maybe Scorsese didn't get that when he watched it. You know what I'm saying? That's cultural. Maybe it's generational. I don't know. But I'm securing what we did, so his statements don't really bother me. Javik Bozeman, pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much. We're candid forever. Thank you, man. I'm delighted to say that Lord Grantham, Robert Crawley, Hugh Bonneville, Take all of those, uh, is in the studio. 
How you doing, Hugh? Very good. Nice. I'm sorry, you're suffering a little bit. I'm a little bit. I'm, I'm a little bit throaty, but you know the show has to go on. I'm Absolutely. thinking Doctor Footlights may well exactly you'll, help you'll me out. Through. I was sitting in a BBC studio, and I can see the the temporary pass that you've been <laughs> given with your photograph in the front. And I'm just sort of very much aware of the fact that when you come in here, you must. It's almost like like a home from home. Well, it is because of yes, because of W one A the 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 fly on the wall documentary. Uh, comedy uh that was uh, that we shot here over several years um it's, it's it's lovely to be back i must say and to see that some things never change painful drama is how i'd uh, <laughs> how i'd actually describe it and i remember you last time you came in i don't know whether it was for monuments men but you showed mark and me how to fold a bike because there are genuinely those fold away bikes on all these floors i know i know i keep bumping into people who have those fold away bikes and uh, i still can't even after whatever it was you know several series i'm still not able to fold them very well and sometimes it sparks back into life. Um, there was a, it was a couple of months ago when, actually, last, I think it was end of last year, maybe, Jenny A. Clare on Twitter said, what is BBC Sounds and how does it differ from BBC Radio? To which you, can you read out your tweet? Because you were, because you're not on Twitter quite as much as you used to. No, I used to be a lot, and I'm not so much now. But uh, yeah, so Jason Watkins and I occasionally, uh, you know, comment on something that's in the news uh, with the hashtag W1A. But anyway, Jenny had said, what is BBC Sounds, please, and how does it differ from BBC Radio? And so myself, in the, in the manner of Ian Fletcher, said, it's a good question, Jenny, and we're glad you've asked it. Part of our More of Less initiative, <laughs> BBC Sounds is a condensation of BBC Radio and BBC Noise, which in 2020 will be repurposed as BBC Echo, a great big <laughs> empty hall, probably in Kidderminster. Um, and that seemed to strike a... Cord. And Jason Watkins, as his character, Simon Hayward, who was the sort of head of nothingness, really, within the BBC, said, if I can just pipe myself on board and join the soundscape here, not wanting to bang drums or bang anything else either, but I champion BBC Noise, trademark. Uh, you guys will know better than I do how things will turn out, but we have great hopes for BBC Din, trademark. <laughs> it, was a lo- it was a lovely exchange. <laughs> OK, so Monos, which is the new film by Alejandro Landis, which is a, a really extraordinary piece of work. There you it's go. A- album, album, album of the, of the week. week. Definitely. It's a film nominally about teenage guerrillas, teenage soldiers being trained in an unspecified mountain above, you know, above the cloud line as part of an ongoing war, which is never given geographical or geopolitical expression of exactly where it is or exactly what's happening. They have cartoony nom de guerre war names, Rambo, Wolf, Boom Boom. They're being trained by a scary messenger figure who says to them at the beginning that their main job is that they're looking after what appears to be an American prisoner of war who seems to be being held to ransom. And they're told at the beginning that they have been given a gift of a milk cow, that they must milk. If they don't milk the cow, the cow will explode. And so there's this sort of strange, almost fairy tale tenor to it at the beginning. The messenger then leaves and they are then left to their own devices. And they have to report back to whoever the authorities are through a radio, through radio transmissions. But they are essentially alone. They are isolated and then during the course of the movie they have to leave that area they have to move down into the jungle the group starts to fracture and there is a very very specific reference to lord of the flies in the in the the uh, appearance of a pig's head on a stick literally a pig's head on a stick what happens is that the the group which has a kind of feral quality in terms of its own internal uh, hierarchical dynamic 
starts to fracture, things start to fall apart. And obviously, as we said before, Lord of the Flies, there's also certain rel- uh, references to Comrade's Heart of Darkness, which appears to just run through so much cinema at the moment. I mean, Ad Astra is absolutely, you know, a Heart of Darkness story that happens to be taking place in space. I also bizarrely saw um, things that made me think, I mean, I don't think these are reference points that the director used. The director and the writer said that when they were making the film, they watched Come and See, the traumatising, you know, child's eye view of war, the Klimov film. But it, at one point I was thinking of Barbet Schroeder's uh, La Vallée, The Valley Obscured by Clouds, which is this very strange movie about a mythical place that... It, it's meant to be paradisial, but this is very dark undertones to it. Occasionally, it seemed like that crossed with the the threat element of uh, Ruggiero Deodato's Cannibal Holocaust, almost. The way in which it's filmed is with these deeply oversaturated colours that place you right experientially in the middle of this landscape, in the middle of this group, in the middle of this environment. And the soundtrack is quite the strangest and quite the most brilliant thing that I've heard in a long time, and it put me in mind to some extent of the pulsing nature of Anna Meredith's music from uh, eighth grade. And it's, I mean, this is, uh, this is a really foolish thing to say as a film critic, but it's a film that has to be seen to be believed. As opposed to... As a film that, a po- film that, I, that I could adequately explain to you in words, because it is so much to do with the audio-visual experience. I mean, I've tried. I've given it my best yeah, shot. It's a good shot. Thank you, but it's probably failed. And the movie is called... Monos. Uh, hey, howdy. Hey there. Uh, sorry to bother you, but... Why, you're not a bother at all. We were just out for my early morning stroll. And look, <laughs> we met you. My name is Gabby Gabby, and this is my very good friend, Vincent. Oh, uh, Woody, pleasure to meet you. Well, it's nice to meet you, Woody. And you are... This is Forky. I'm trash. Our, our, our kid made him. Kid? Toys around here don't have kids. Are you two lost? So that was a clip from Toy Story 4. We're very glad to be joined by Tom Hanks. Tom, An well, audio clip of Toy an Story An audio clip is for radio, yeah. Can't quite appreciate the animation on it. No, but I think obviously in a movie like this, the voices are all important, Tom. Oh, I'd like to, I'd like to say they're the key. <laughs> so I saw an interview with you in which you were talking about how much you were allowed to say and how much you weren't allowed to say. And as a film critic, I'm always terrified of plot spoilers. So I would just like to invite you to start by telling the audience who haven't seen Toy Story 4 as much as you would want them to know. Well, uh, the, the, the toys are in Bonnie's room. And let's just put it this way. Bonnie doesn't want to go to kindergarten. Yeah. But she does. And she comes back with a new friend. And from there, either mayhem or delight ensues. I don't, you know, what's funny is you don't want to have spoilers. Let me get this straight. Yeah. People will see the movie on the very first day. Yes. And that's a small percentage of the people who see the movie in the length of its run. Yeah. And don't they all become spoilers, you know, at some point? I don't quite understand. Uh, am I allowed to say that they're toys that come to life in a room? <laughs> that's it, Tommy. <laughs> you just spoiled it for I just spoiled it for everybody. Sorry, know. kids. But you know it's the great bane of all film critics that the minute you start saying 2001, it's a movie set in space. Oh, spoiler! It's going, thank you. <laughs> Begins with the dawn of man. Oh, it does. It does, does, does it? It? Well, you've just ruined the experience for me. And yet we will still go off as, you know, Jaws was on TV last night. Yeah. Who hasn't seen Jaws? <laughs> and yet there it is and it will still Did you hold watch your it? attention. I watched it for a little bit, you know. I, I mean, I saw it when I was in high school. So It is still fun. I know what happens. Yeah. <laughs> 
The sequels, however, not so great. And this is now Toy Story 4. Traditionally, yeah. 4s have not done well. But this is the odd thing about Toy Story. They're all individual films. They're not sequels per se. I think if they were sequels, they would have been knocked out a lot faster than Pixar has knocked them out. And I think they labor so intensely and for a very, very long time about not just the story, but whether or not the story is going to live up to the thread count of all the other films, yeah. uh, the other Toy Story films, so that they can exist in this odd way completely on their own. And if you're familiar where they came from, uh, well, that helps. But they do stand completely on their own merits. We recorded, we walked into Studio B at Disney Studios in 1991 and started recording the voices of these toys that have these adventures. And if you had certainly asked us then, can you imagine doing four of them? We would probably have to say, well, if this one's any good and the next one's okay, maybe. They do not want to make a Toy Story movie that is just okay. No, absolutely. And I have to confess that I went in in a state of high anxiety because one, two, and three meant so much to me. Three. Um, Three particularly. Yeah, and my co-presenter, Simon Mayer, who you've met before, who isn't available today, which is why you have me. We were in tears at the end of the film, and when we were reviewing Toy Story 3 on the radio together, we literally were both crying and citing the end of Winnie the Pooh. Well done, congratulations, and thank you so much for not letting us all down. But was there any part of you that worried that that's a really hard trilogy oh, to... Oh, completely. When was the third one? This was now... Eight years ago? Eight years ago. The last emotional beat of that, which is which toys are about to meet, meet their end in a fiery inferno, and what do they do? They reach out for each other. You know, They seek out each other's hands and their eyes in order to communicate this profound sense of love and care, which had me. I was a goner. And because we're not, as artists who go in and record this, we had no lines during that. So we had no idea what the filmmakers were putting together. For this, let's call it Toy Story Forky, you know, which is, you know, the joke we have about it. Um, I hadn't heard that before. That's because of the, you know, the Forky character. Yeah. We went in just with this kind of explanation of what they were going to try to do. And the question always is, was, okay, well, okay, there's the story. Boy, I hope it's going to be good by the time we get to the end of this. You know, <laughs> about, it's about three years of work that goes into it. Yeah. And it's starting and stopping. You go in, you lay down an awful lot of raw material, and then you go away for eight months. And then when you come back, they've refined that, and then you're going to be adding some more onto it. But we never saw a quote-unquote screenplay. When, we, when they showed us the movie that they wanted to make in Toy Story 3, they just showed us an animatic yeah. in, in a movie theater, that you know, rough drawings and sound effects and music and scratch vocals, and we saw what was going on. But on this time, it was literally a complete, total leap of faith. I didn't see it until last Tuesday in the same premiere that I'd seen the first one. In. And was it a huge sense of relief or pride? It's or- wonder. Uh, you know, I don't know that we can take pride in it, I do. I'm honored and proud to be in it, but I have never walked into a recording session on Toy Story without just wishing it was done already because it's always a profound distance emotionally and physically that particularly Woody has to go because Woody is so clenched throughout. And you go to this emotional place as much as you can and then you just hope that... No, I don't even hope. I just trust that they are as 
petrified of doing well as we are. They're not a happy group of people. I mean, they smile and they say, thanks for coming in and <laughs> here's what we're going to try. But as soon as you, you can see the concern on their face as soon as you start recording something. So much so that my last three sessions on Toy Story 4, which I knew were potentially the you know, the culmination of the saga. Yeah. Usually you record facing the creative team and facing the the booth, the control booth. And this time I turned around, I had my back to them because I didn't want to make their eye contact. I didn't want to see their worried faces. And I, I, I wanted to try to get to some other place in those final reels as Woody. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Mark. Hey, Simon. I see Dex Fletcher's terrific Rocket Man is out on Blu-ray on Monday. It is. We had an email this week from someone who got thrown in prison for singing too much Elton John. I'm not sure when... I dread to think where this is going. I'm not sure when he's going to get out, but I think it's going to be a long, long time. It helps if I don't start laughing. (laughs) Too soon. Turns out I've got an annoying habit of quoting Elton John lyrics. Hope you don't mind. To be honest, I'm not sure about these jokes. They're not not even a little bit funny. Okay. Let's hear what our time is. Tiny... there much more of this? No, that's it. Okay. I took one out, actually. A feature only available on our podcast there, DVD of the week. And judging by the quality of those Elton puns, some might say that's a merciful release. What's coming up in the next half hour, Prof? We've got Dame Helen Mirren. Dame view. Helen Mirren. <laughs> Doesn't work. It's not the same. My review of us and your chat with Odd Danny Boyle. Told you. And Dimesh Patel. That's after the latest Five Live News. Welcome back to Kermit Amaze Film Review, the best of the year. What can we hear in this last half hour, Mark? We can hear your chat with Ordani No. And Himesh Patel and my reviews of Jordan Peele's Us, Holmes and Watson and Last Christmas. But first, it's Dame Helen Mirren. Dame Helen Mirren. Who came in to talk about The Good Liar. Hello. Hello, Helen. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Simon. It's very, very nice to see you. Uh, Winchester was the last time you were on the show. Yes, very different film. Very, yes. very, very different. Different genre. And I've been sitting here thinking how we can talk about your movie with, with it's, without spoiling it for anybody. Yes. I guess we could just lie about the whole thing. We could. We? Okay, yes. <laughs> I particularly enjoy the animated sequence yes, exactly. in this movie. Yeah. Although I was surprised by the, ad, the underwater. <laughs> the underwater nude swimming. <laughs> yes, I'm surprised that you agreed to do that. Yes, well, I did it in my very first film, you know, Age of Consent. It was all about underwater nude swimming, yes. So I thought it was good to reprise the same theme at the end of my career. (laughs) And then the bit in space towards the end. I thought that was very inventive by the director. (laughs) Um, No, we're sorry. We're not messing. We are messing with you, dear listeners. So it was, uh, I was five minutes into the film and I realised I had read the book and um, interviewed Nicholas Searle. Oh, interesting. A few years ago. So I was thinking, oh, okay. Oh, it's... That, okay, I know. Fine, I know. I, oh, but even, interesting. But, but yes. even, even so, the twists and the turns. It's one of those stories where almost every fact that we can talk about is a spoiler. So, <laughs> so what I'm going to say is, tell us about, tell us about the film, Helen. <laughs> See where we go. Well, this is. I I, th- I think this is a sort of a, a bit of a throwback to the sort of thirties, forties noirish films. Maybe a, it has Hitchcockian over overtones. Um, uh, it's it's kind of almost surprising that it's it's in colour, not in black and white. Um, it's a thriller, and um, uh, it, it's about uh, people misleading each other. We. 
it starts off with a couple who've met on the internet and um, and we think at the beginning of the movie, and it, it would be rather a nice movie actually, is a sort of rom-com about in, internet dating for older people sort of thing. And I think there is a film to be made there, but, but uh, this film quickly takes different twists and turns. Um, and that's it's it's so difficult to talk about because obviously yes. we don't want to give the story away and and, and literally spoil it. Twists and turns, cat and mouse, um, all the way through. The film obviously revolves around you and Ian and uh, and and your relationship. It's fantastic to see you on screen together, which you haven't done before. You have been in a in a play. This is Strindberg's Dance of Death, yes. and I was I watched an interview with which you and Ian did for. Dance of Death. Really? Yes, oh, I'd love to like see that. 19 years ago, I think. I know. So I can't believe that's that long ago, but it is. But it seems amazing that you, ha- given that you did that play and got such good reviews, and there seemed to be a good relationship between you then in this interview, 20 years ago, that you haven't been recorded. I know, it's weird. Before. You know, that's the way life is, you know. And that's the way our, our life as actors is. And, you know, you see people that you haven't worked, either you have worked with them like 10 or 15, 20, 30 years ago, and you're back together and it's like those 30 years haven't gone by. You're just back to exactly how it was when you were working together. That's that's the way our job is as, as actors. You know, um, we're all little fishes swimming around in the same pond and sometimes we bump into each other and sometimes we don't. But we are basically in the same pond and we kind of know that. So, yes, it, it is kind of surprising, but, you know, there you go. There's yeah. there's a lot of people I haven't worked with, uh, you know, that I would have loved to have worked with. It's a film with one of those great titles. The film, the title tells you everything. Firstly, it's us. And secondly, it's about America, which because it's us, it's US. And it's one of those things that I, I love a film with a pithy title that means two things, both of which mean the same, which is the central line in the film, we're Americans, being very careful not to give away too much. Well, we did a bit of tiptoeing. You did, but well done. I mean, I think that the trailer still tells you, you know, more than you need to know. As you said, there's this, the trauma at the beginning in the 1980s when a girl goes into a hall of mirrors and sees a reflection of herself. And then years later, she's haunted by this reflection. And then suddenly this family are confronted by the phrase used by, 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 by doppelgangers. And... What then happens is that the the movie plays a very very sort of thin knife edge between uh, between home invasion movie and uh, horror movie and knockabout comedy. I mean, they invoke, for example, movies like Home Alone, and there's a gag about the fact that the kids don't know what Home Alone is. It's also, I think, you could see it as a kind of a flip side mirror image riposte to that French Romanian film Them. I'd actually like to see Them and Us as as a double bill, and at the centre of it is a family who you are given enough time with before things go completely you know off the rails that you care about them and you invest in them and one of the one of the best scenes in the film which is nothing to do with horror one of the best scenes of the film is them sitting around a table bickering it's a film that takes its time to firstly set up the dynamics of the family, to let you know who everyone is and what everyone's foibles are and what everyone's phobias and paranoias are, and then take them to a beach and put them alongside another family who are this kind of dysfunctional family, headed up by Elizabeth Moss, who at one point in what appears to be a throwaway line says, you know, if it hadn't been for my kids, I could have been an actor. And suddenly you know so much about it. You know so much about her disenchantment with her life, her disenchantment with a lot, the fact that they are the kind of the dysfunctional mirror image to this other family, which we've seen bickering, but they get on with each other. And 
it reminds me of all those films in which you take time to set the characters up and to, to tell us who they are and to let us know what their lives are like. And if you get those details right, then when the storm comes, it's all the more convincing. So I've seen it twice now. And the first time I didn't know much about it at all. And uh, so the first time around, I thought it was really exciting. It was like a roller coaster. Ride. The second time around, when you kind of know where it's going, I was much more impressed by the interweaving, by the textures, by the way in which you see that all of this is built into every single part of the structure of it. I think as well... It's a really good crowd-pleasing film and the film is saying, you know, in that celebratory way that Wes Craven always always talks about, there is a, a joy and a release in watching a really good horror movie, but particularly a really good horror movie that takes a pair of scissors to a subject that it really understands and plunges right into its dark heart. There's a sequel to The Shining coming out next week. It's called Dr. Sleep. Mark spoke to one of its stars, Rebecca Ferguson. That's the Rebecca Ferguson. And you'll hear from them after this clip. You're wondering why I'm wearing such a funny hat. (laughs) I always wear this hat. So much, it's a part of my name now. My friends, my very, very best friends, they just call me Rose the Hat. It looks like a magician's hat. It is. It's a magic hat. Do you want to see? Nothing up my sleeves. Nothing in my hat. Don't worry, that's my friend. You're missing the trick. Reach inside. Wow. It's so pretty. Because it's special. And speaking of special, you're a little magic too, aren't you? The flower in my hand What color is it? Purple. Violet. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, So after all these years, we revisit The Shining in a completely uh, new story based on the thing by Stephen King. For those who haven't seen it, tell us about your character and where we meet her. I play Rose the Hat, or as I try and say Rose the Hat, (laughs) (laughs) with a little bit of an Irish twang. I'm a leader of a group of misfits, of outcasts. So this is several years after the original Shining. Danny has now grown up and is living with the memories of everything that happened to him in the Overlook Hotel. Um, Without giving away anything else about the plot, because I think people want to see it unfold, how do the paths of Danny Torrance and your character meet? It's, it's an interesting one to interview, isn't it? We can't describe know, anything. Nothing happens. And yet, <laughs> no, but we, we do pick up 40 years later, I would say. And <laughs> we meet Danny Torrent, who is battling emotions and, and stress from, from his past. And I think slowly accepting where he is when another threat occurs and it activates um, something within him. And his path is crossed with a little child called Abra. Okay. And the connection between my character and Danny Torrent is through this little girl who possesses a lot of what she calls the magic. And as this is what my character feeds off, she is, to quote myself, which I like doing, my great big whale that I want to capture. That was very elegantly done because it summed it up. It didn't actually give anything away. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, I have to make a confession is that I uh, I did a doctorate in horror fiction. So I th- that's what I do. But I read in an interview that you're not a horror fan. <gasps> 
could you be with me in all of the interviews? Because I don't feel eloquent Gone enough to... I have to... nothing else to do. <laughs> no, it's very simple to say that I wasn't a fan of horror movies. I was not a fan, and I am still not a fan of things jumping out at me. Okay. And that is what they call a start... I mean, you would know how to put it eloquently, but a yeah. startle re- effect, yeah. the non-control that something will come out. I hate it, yeah. and I, I will cry. <laughs> There's something that happens in me. If you watch a movie which has got With, to the jump scares. Well, even if someone behind me would jump out, I would not enjoy it. You know mm. those Halloween things that people walk around and they jump out? Oh, yeah, it yeah. It is my, my apps. I, I just feel uncomfortable talking about it. Okay. Um, but then obviously with these films, I did, you know, The Kid Be King, which is more for the younger audience. But I wanted to do research and think, what is it that scares and what is it to be animated but not too animated for the younger audience? Mm. And then you take it into the to the genre for, for us adults. What is it that is non-startle? What could I watch and feel terrified about? Mm. And I watched a lot of serial killers. I lo- watched a lot of interviews with psychopaths, okay. as other people would refer to them. Yeah. Tried to find the link between and give my character wisps of that. And okay. What made me the most scared was the maternal nurturing aspect, the human bit of someone where I can look at them and think, like Ted Bundy, for example, a beautiful, intelligent, smart man, were drawn to him. And yet he describes so brilliantly his emotion or lack of emotion when he kills these people. Had you seen the original Shining when it came out? Yes. Did it scare you? I was too young to be scared in, in the beauty, of, in, the, in the aspect of what Kubrick created. But I think what it was was the sound effect. It was mm-hmm. the music. It was very loud. Yeah, yeah. It was a very monotone tune. And I fell asleep through the maze. And I think because I was so tense. Um, and then I couldn't sleep for a couple of nights after that. And I never saw the ending until now when I was offered this role. And I obviously watched The Shining. Obviously, it's, I don't think it's giving anything away to say that the Overlook does uh, feature as a character in the new film, and very that, well put. By that does way. thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> that does mean that there must have been moments when you felt like you were walking through something that you had experienced in the past. Can you tell me about that? I guess this is also one of the beauties about being an actor and, and being a part of this this world. If you love film. And if you get the possibility to link on to something that you have appreciated. I mean, I, I absolutely loved Kubrick's The Shining. Yeah. And when I saw the sets that they had created for our film, knowing that a linking scene would have something to do with the past and, and you know, the, the bloody corridors, I think we can mention that were created yeah, yeah. in the former film, they could all be seen as, as, as linking bits into our film. That was incredible. And also, because Mike Flanagan is such a geek, ridiculous <laughs> geek, I mean, <laughs> love him because of it. And also, that was one of the reasons why I did this film. Um, he created the tricycle for us grown-ups. Yeah. And we got to cycle through, <laughs> through, the, through the, uh, the sets with the sound effect of the carpet and the wood. You mentioned the bloody corridor. One of my favorite moments in it is your character seeing the, the, the bloody corridor, as you refer to it. But the look on her face is like, that's good. Yes. <laughs> Which is, which is kind of exactly what I remember, because that was the, the original trailer for The Shining was just that shot. And the, and the music. And the sound of, the, yeah, of that score in the background. Well, I thought it was a very nice touch. But it's, not, but it's like, oh, that's good. I'm we kind did. of impressed by the... <laughs> it's fun you bring that up, because we did so many takes. I try to always push down my own expectations, but 
a lot of people ask me if, if, I, if it, there was a pressure to do this film in relation to The Shining. And for me, it is so important to see them as separate entities. Mm-hmm. They're, they're obviously connected, the same characters, but new things appear, new threats. And you should be able to see this film without having seen The Shining. And it should still be a good film. But for me, that moment was the most important one. How does Rose the Hat react in an environment she has never been before? But for us, movie geeks, we all know. And I think she would love it and embrace it. It's the sign of human weakness, isn't it, that she feeds off. Last Christmas, which you'll have heard a lot about, you'll have seen it advertised, and this is what Mark thinks. I am world-beating Emma Thompson fan, think she walks on water, think she's just brilliant. I think she's a brilliant writer, brilliant actor, brilliant person all round. Directed by Paul Feig, loved Bridesmaids, loved Spy, actually, you know, had good things to say about Ghostbusters in the middle of all that nonsense that was going around about it. Um, It's a Christmas movie. I'm a fan of Christmas movies. It's a rom-com that owes a certain debt to the sort of tone of Love Actually, you know, and I love a rom-com and I love Love Actually. Um, And and, uh, it also addresses issues that concern, you know, that concern me. So... You know, it talks about loneliness and it talks about homelessness and, you know, the, the Brexit subplot, which Amelia Clark said in that is very important. And she said it's because the people that wrote this movie care about those things and there's no way that they could write that without those things being front and centre. So you loved it. Um, I think its heart is in the right place and it breaks my heart to say that almost everything else isn't. I really wanted to like Last Christmas and I, had, I knew that the reviews were not great when I said, well, I think when you saw it, the reviews hadn't broken. And there had been no reviews at no. all. No. And I, you know, I thought that, you know, people were being unnecessarily sniffy, but I really found it a crushing disappointment. And believe me, I take no pleasure in saying that at all because I so wanted it to work. I so wanted to enjoy it. I so wanted to find myself, you know, wrapped in all that positivity that's in that Amelia Clark interview. And I think there are a number of problems i got to be honest, I think one of them is the writing. I don't think it's well written. I think it is actually creakily plotted. And it has an issue with the way in which it the way in which it never really understands the George Michael songs. I mean, it's a the, the whole premise of it is essentially taken from a single line of a George Michael song taken out of context. Incidentally, if you've seen the trailer, the trailer has pretty much already spoiled um, again. Again, how many times have we had this conversation? Although that said, I think the film itself, you know, plays very much on the front foot as far as that reveal is concerned. It just felt to me that everything about the film was desperately trying to charm me and desperately trying to make me laugh. And all it was doing was making me think this is, it's like plot, it's like wading through a snowdrift. And the more it tried to be charming, the less and less it managed to do it. The jokes fall flat. The romance never gels. The the plot is contrived to a point of utter ridicule. Incidentally, I should quote this. There was a Rolling Stone review that was a terrible review that said, that headlined, there are god-awful holiday movies and then there's Last Christmas. And I know about this review because it was retweeted by the director, Paul Feig, who wrote... 
As a lifelong Rolling Stone reader, I sincerely thank you for your opinion. We can't win everybody over, but we will continue to try. I swear all our hearts were in the right place. Can our one star at least be a really, really big star? And that actually made me start to melt. Classy. Holmes and Watson is at number nine. So I went to Eastley, um, which is, I like going to Eastley. Eastley's very nice. Um, and uh, there's a, a nice cinema there, which I often go and see if I you know, missed a movie at a preview screening. And I saw Holmes and Watson, which, weirdly enough, John C. Riley, who we're going to speak Talk to, to in, a bit, in yeah. just a moment. And I'd seen a lot of negative stuff on, uh, on, on Twitter and in the press saying, you know, it's, it's really terrible. Somebody said, has John C. Riley norbited his chances of getting an award? Because there's that whole thing about you do a movie that's brilliant, but then you do another movie that's kind of... Holmes and Watson is indescribably bad. The humour is fantastically kind of stupid and uh, like something from the 1970s when you would turn on the television and the most retrograde, really, really terrible, boring comedy would be on, you know, and just making jokes about things that aren't funny and finding humour in things that aren't funny and thinking that shrieking is funny. I don't know how a film this bad got made. Why she had to go, I don't know, she wouldn't say. I said something wrong, now I long for yesterday. Why did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? And that's a clip from yesterday. I'm delighted to say that Danny Boyle, its director, is back on the show. Hello, Danny. Hello again, Simon. Nice to see you. And Himesh Patel, who plays Jack Malik, is here as well. Hello, Himesh. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And we heard you in that clip, we heard you singing yesterday and then Lily James off the back saying, wow. When did you write that? Exactly. <laughs> I love how she delivers that line. It's brilliant. So, Danny, just tell us where the idea of this... It's interesting, that bit you talk about, because the two women in it, um, Sophia and Lily, they're both moved almost to tears by the song. And there is that melancholy in their work. The Beatles have been erased from everybody's consciousness, memory, records. There's nothing on Google, there's no vinyl, there's no CDs. Nobody knows who you're talking about when you mention Ringo Starr. So it's like, except this guy, there's one unsuccessful singer-songwriter and how useful that he is one of those um, who actually does remember them or tries to recall them and begins to play them and you're never quite sure is he just doing the job on behalf of the public you know to kind of rescue these great masterpieces or is he doing it in order to further what has been up until then a pretty stalled career whatever he becomes in John Lennon's phrase more popular than Jesus as a result of it so it's, it's a sort of classic what if yeah, absolutely. Set up. Okay. What was the audition like? The audition was yeah. a delight, really. I did a tape, and then it, Danny and Richard decided they wanted to meet me. And I was very nervous because I didn't know what to expect. Of course, I was meeting two titans of cinema, you know, and people I admired very much. But I realised I had to just enjoy it. Otherwise, if I was going to let the fear of it take over, I wouldn't have done a good job for one. And what did you have to do? I had to sing two songs from, from the script, which I had then read. And some scenes, I think two or three scenes. So I sang Yesterday, and I sang Back in the USSR, which got oh. Danny on his feet dancing around. So, Danny, what were you looking for? By that stage, I had a slight fear that the 
number of Beatles songs wouldn't be sustainable because all the guys that we'd seen up until that point, some of whom were really wonderful players and singers, I mean, they're amazing songs, but you thought, are you going to really bear 17 of them without any change into somebody else's music or anything? Even though the Beatles stuff is obviously enormous, inbuilt variety, but I began to worry it was going to be a bit karaoke. What it needed was a bit of soul, really. And what I was referring to earlier, the melancholy, you need to touch on that, not just the brightness of them. You need to touch that. And he did yesterday beautifully. And then he did USSR. And you know they're the rock and roll kings as well, you know. And they're one of the few groups that punk rock never slagged off because, of course, punk rock in a way benefited from Helter Skelter or back in the USSR. Anyway, he did his own acoustic version of USSR and I had me bouncing around the room and I just thought, I know those songs aren't his, but they feel like they're his, and therefore let's cast him. And it was just like, when casting's like that, it's so great, because you just don't have any doubts. You go, it's him. And it's almost like it casts itself, really. TV Movie of the Week. These are the best films on subscription-free television. Selections include Holiday Inn, The Man Who Haunted Himself, Memento, Wild Tales, and Love Actually. Stuart Clarkson, Holiday Inn. Love a bit of Bing. Love actually, mainly for that Emma Thompson scene in the bedroom. Yeah. Phil Reed, I'm torn between it's December, so Love Actually can get a viewing, but it's not actually a good film. Uh, I just love it, whereas Memento is stunningly good and a well-crafted movie. Well, no one has said maps to the stars. I mean, there is a David Cronenberg movie at quarter past 11 at night on Monday on BBC Two, which is a perfectly reasonable time on a very, very popular channel. I'm in a bit of a strop now, so I'm going for that. However, I'm going for that as a double bill with Love Actually. Okay. And the reason I'm going for it as a double bill with Love Actually is that our top production team yes. need to be taken out and spanked with a wet slipper for what's about to come. Boom. TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. Moshi Monsters, Playing for Keeps, American Assassin and Love Actually. Miles Hamer. I, I, I mean, after all these Love years... Love Actually is an intolerable revolving door of mirth-free hijinks and nausea that hates women as much as it does Christmas. As Charles grimaces in the infinitely better four weddings, it's right up there with my father's funeral for sheer entertainment value. Delighted to see Love Actually on here, says Andy O'Donnell, a film with more abhorrent characters than Wolf of Wall Street with the obvious exception of Emma Thompson. Anyway, there's plenty more because that's the way they decided to annoy you. Ludicrous. Let's walk out. Why don't we walk out? Shall we? Okay. That's it. Fill your own show. All out. All out. Yeah. I still can't believe the film was on both lists. Shall we walk out again in protest? Yes, let's. Okay. Now, before we do that, and we all go off in a huff, this has been, in case you were wondering... I was. ...a something else production for BBC Five Live. Thanks for clarifying. Robbie and Edith will be back with you on January the 3rd. Oh, Robbie and Edith. That doesn't work either. With Greta Gerwig. And then Mark and I return so you can mark your diaries January the 10th with not just Sam Blumin Mendes, but also the Safties, the Safdie brothers. Right, let's go. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Available now on BBC Sounds. Hello everyone, it's Ellis and John here and we are very excited to introduce a new podcast and it's called How Do You Cope with Ellis and John. We're going to be talking to a range of guests about the challenges and hurdles and setbacks that they might have faced in their own lives while asking the question, how do you cope? You hear about grief being like glitter. You hoover it and you tidy it up. You just keep finding little bits. You never quite get rid of it completely. Eventually I went to see a psychiatrist and he said, right, I'm signing you off for three months. You're having the mental health equivalent of a heart attack. 
week, how do you cope with Ellis and John on BBC Sounds?